All right, good morning, guys. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Drew. And I think that one of the pressures that we feel uniquely in our culture right now is this pressure to conform our beliefs to what's popular. So I've heard this term ideological persecution. I think that with social media and just with what our friends are saying and things like that, there's basically this push, especially for us as Christians, to conform because we're not just seen as wrong in our beliefs, but often we're characterized as bigots. And it was a few years ago, I was watching on CNN as a prominent Christian leader was being interviewed, and the interviewer was asking him questions about the Christian sexual ethic and kind of trying to shame him for his beliefs about those things. And as they were having this conversation, this leader said, well, you know that as Christians, we believe that a formerly dead guy is going to come back in the clouds on a horse with a tattoo on his leg and that he is going to kill everyone who disagrees with him. So we don't have any problem as Christians embracing things that to our culture are weird, okay? And so since I saw that clip, I've kind of taken on that spirit myself, and one of my missions in life is to keep Christianity weird. Because if you read this book and you don't find things in here that you disagree with or that are hard for you to understand or accept, you haven't been reading very closely. And we're coming to one of those passages in Exodus about the Passover. And the big idea we're going to look at today is that God protects his people to show them his favor. But to unpack this theme, the first thing we're going to talk about is one of those uncomfortable topics, and that is the wrath of God. Okay, so we're looking at Exodus chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 6 and jump right into the story to start. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there never has been, nor ever will be again. So there we go. Welcome to church. All right. So basically what we've seen in Exodus thus far is that there have been nine different plagues that God Almighty has rained down on this rebellious nation of Egypt. As Moses came to them and he said, God has said, let my people go. And Pharaoh, sort of representing all of the people, has over and over again said no. So we've seen frogs We've seen blood, we've seen locusts, we've seen gnats, and we've seen dead animals, to name a few things. And still, Pharaoh has hardened his heart, and he said, okay, I'll let, I'll let the people go. And then he's reneged on that and ended up not letting God's people go. So now, God threatens the most terrible plague yet, a a plague that's in a completely different category. And God says that about midnight, 
that night, and I think he says about midnight to make it even more terrifying. If it was like, it's at midnight, then you know exactly when it's coming, but about midnight makes it even more ominous. And he says that the firstborn of everyone in Egypt will die. So I was thinking about this, and I think in the past, in reading this passage, I always thought of the firstborn being just the youngest generation, right? But that's not what the text says. It says every firstborn will die, which means, I was thinking about this personally, in my family, had I been an Egyptian, I would have died, my son Luke would have died, my dad would have died, and my grandfather would have died because we were all firstborns. So I don't want us to read this sort of in this distant, dismissive way. I want us to read it in a very personal way. I I don't want us to kind of gloss over how devastating this would have been. I want us to think about how devastating it would have been. It would have been absolutely terrifying and uh, sobering to think about this reality. And so Moses tells Pharaoh that this is what's going to happen. So then the question for us as modern Western thinkers is, how can we believe in a God who does something like this? How can we have a category for a person who, right, in our minds, this is how we think, has the audacity to say to an entire nation, every firstborn will die and then has the will to carry that out? We need to grapple with that question, don't we? Well, I think that if we zoom out a little bit and we look at the whole biblical narrative, we get a very different picture of the world than we naturally have. For example, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God says to Adam and Eve, who are the only people on earth at that time, In the day that you eat of it, meaning the fruit, the famous fruit, you will surely die. Okay, so think about this. To start the entire narrative of the Bible, we have these two people choosing to eat fruit that they were not authorized to eat, and God's response is to put every person who would subsequently be born under a death sentence. Okay, so one of the ways that we answer the question, how could this happen, is that this is happening, a a version of this plague is happening all the time. Every single one of us is under a death sentence, and what we believe about death is it's not the way that things are supposed to be. It's not according to the normal course of events in nature. It is punishment for sin. The wages of sin is death. Okay, so God's not doing something extraordinary in this passage. He's doing something ordinary. It's just that he's doing it all at once. That's one of the first answers. The second thing that we have to say about this is that goodness, not wrath, is the attribute of that God is displaying in this passage. Okay, let me unpack that a little bit. Okay, wrath is God's aversion to sin 
because he is good. Right? Because he is a just and good God, he cannot be in the company of sin. And when he sees sin happening, he must punish it, not because he hates humanity, but because our sin demands to be punished. And so it's a very simple question. If you committed a heinous crime, would you rather face a good judge or a bad judge? And the answer is you would rather face a bad judge because you might get off the hook. If the judge is good, he will punish you or she will punish you. And God is a good judge. And because he's a good judge, no one gets away with anything. I think we've seen a a vivid illustration of how goodness behaves when there is sin in the news lately. And it's these vivid pictures we've gotten of these Ukrainian men saying goodbye to their families at train stations and at borders, and they're giving them hugs, and they're sending them into Poland, or they're sending them somewhere else so that they can be protected And these men are saying, we're going to fight against the Russian invaders. Why? It's not because the Ukrainian men are bloodthirsty and they're looking for war. It's because they're good men. See, goodness, when it meets up with evil, must respond with wrath. That's what justice does. And so what we see here is the goodness and the justice of God coming into contact with evil men and him leveling a just punishment. In other words, God is not flying off the handle here. God is in a measured way saying, this is what these people deserve. Okay, so there's a couple different possible reactions to what I just said. One is to say, I don't buy that. That's not my conception of who God is, and I could never embrace a God like that because I don't believe that a good God would have wrath. Okay, in so doing, what you're doing is you're essentially saying, I am good and God is bad. And so you're putting yourself in the place of judge. Okay, here's why I think respectfully, if that's how you're thinking about this passage, that you're wrong. Here's one of the evidences that you're wrong. You watch the news, and you're shocked by what you see. Okay, do you know what shock is? It's when you see something happen that you don't have a category for. And when you see something happen that you don't have a category for, what you do is you're like, oh my goodness, I didn't know that humanity was this bad. Your reaction of shock betrays the reality that you know nothing about people and that you are not just like God. And so the better alternative to us putting ourselves in the place of God is to let God be God. The appropriate response to a passage like this is for us to bow the knee and to say, 
Okay, here's another encouragement in this direction is that we see not just the wrath of God in this passage, but we also see the protection of God. Okay, we're looking at verses 5 through 13 of Exodus 12 now. So that's the punishment for the Egyptians, but we're going to see in this passage God's provision for his people. It says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay, this passage is a really important lens for us to view the whole Bible through because you could get the impression that God is punishing the Egyptians and that he's sort of this tribal deity who is showing favorites, and so he's punishing the Egyptians and letting the Israelites off the hook. This passage is not about God letting the Israelites off the hook. What it shows is that God protects the Israelites not by letting them get away with their own sin, but by providing a substitute for them. So we have a really vivid illustration of how God interacts with sinful humanity to give us mercy in this passage. So he tells the Israelites to pick out a lamb or a goat, a young lamb or goat, a male, without blemish. Here's what God is communicating to them. You are guilty. You're not without blemish. You're not without sin. Remember just a few chapters ago, the Israelites are complaining against Moses, and by extension, complaining against God. And Moses even tells God that he believes that God is evil for the way that he's interacting with his people. This is a rebellious Stiff-necked people. We're going to see that throughout the rest of the book of Exodus. They are not without blemish. So they're to pick out a lamb without blemish, an innocent lamb, to represent for them what they ought to be. And you can imagine that they bring this lamb in. They're supposed to have this lamb in their house for 14 days. And that gives you long enough that your kids are like naming the lamb and you're playing with the lamb and sort of have this little relationship. It's Fluffy the lamb and we love little Fluffy. And the, the people are explaining to their kids why they're getting this lamb. 
It's because God has threatened that this plague is coming and that he is going to kill every firstborn in that land unless they follow his directive. So they've got this lamb. And then eventually, they are supposed to kill the lamb. And they're supposed to bleed it out. And they're supposed to catch the blood. And this death is to represent what they deserve. See, God's not letting them off the hook. He's providing a substitute for them. And so they're watching this lamb as a family die. And they're saying to each other, this is what's supposed to be happening to dad and your brother and your grandpa. Because the wages of sin is death. And we don't deserve to escape from Egypt. We deserve to be under the wrath of God because we're no different than these other people. It's just that God has given us a way out. And so then they spread this blood over their doorposts. They put it over the doorpost. And it's to say, God, we have killed the lamb. We have trusted in your substitute. And so there is no need for you anymore to kill us because we have done what you've told us to do. And then they're to have a meal. They're to eat the lamb. And that is representative of the reality that they're saying, I need what this lamb has. Its blood has, has been spilled for me, but I need to take in what I, it has because I am guilty and this lamb was innocent and I need its innocence to be part of who I am. I need to change. I need my life to be different. Now, I think it's hard to even get our minds around since we live in a city. This was a total agricultural context. It's hard for us to even get our minds around, especially for a child or a family, just how sobering this whole event was. So actually one time in my life, we did a goat roast at my house when I was a kid. And uh, we had some African friends. We invited these African friends over. Our friend was named Chinadu Njoku from Nigeria. And this dude wanted to have a goat roast at our house. We had a lot of land. We had this big meadow by our house. And so we brought some goats out there. My dad was a veterinary pathologist, which means he cuts open animals to see why they died for a living. Got no problem with blood. But the traditional way of doing an African goat roast was to slit the goats under their throat and bleed them out. And so my dad's like pleading with these African guys at our house, like, can I just shoot them with my 22 rifle? Like, this is going to be nasty. And so he tells the story that these guys are kind of having this argument, like, because my dad's like, okay, here's the knife. Who's going to slit the throat? And these guys are like, I don't want to slit the throat. I don't want to slit the throat. I don't want to slit the throat. And so they're in the midst of this conversation. My dad's just a good old farm, farm boy from Iowa. So they're having this conversation. He's like, forget this. He just grabs this goat by the back of its neck and just slices it. And he said he cut some artery, and there's like blood just splurting out all over the place. And then all these African gentlemen are just like yelling, like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is happening. Guys, this is a real story. How perfect of an illustration is this, right? So these guys are, are running around. Well, eventually the goat's blood out and died, and we roasted the goat and ate it. But this, guys, is a gruesome 
bloody scene. And the reason is because God wants to leave us with a vivid portrayal of what sin deserves. And he wants to show us that far from letting the Israelites off the hook, he is providing a substitute. Which means they're left with a couple questions in their mind. One is, why did God choose us, not them, when all of us are sinners? And the lingering question that they have is, how can a lamb that's not made in God's image and is of far less value than humanity take away our guilt? But here's what they do. Even though they don't have complete information, even though they have lingering questions, they put the blood over their door. And I actually read later in the text, all of them did it. They had seen the nine plagues. No one took the easy route on this. They all did it. And here's what I was thinking. You might have had some young men, some firstborns in those families who were up all night. Like, who, who would be in that category? You're like, you're like, I hope the blood works. You know, you're like, just like wide-eyed, like the whole night. Like, they didn't have clocks, but if they did, you're like, just watching the clock, it hits midnight, you're like, still alive, still here, right? You're just, like, terrified. But then you had other guys who were just like, I'm not going to die. Blood, good. And they just slept like babies. They went to bed at 8.30 right after dinner and just slept great. Do you know what? It didn't matter. Because their hope was not in their faith in the blood. Their hope was in the blood. If the blood was over the door, they were saved. If the blood would have not been over the door, they weren't saved. God was teaching them something very important. Your hope is in the blood. Okay, lastly, we see in this text that God was saving the people of Israel to show them his favor. So we see the favor of God displayed. Look at Exodus 12, verses 28 through 36. It says, Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds. As you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So that, they let, 
them have whatever they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Okay, here was the people of Israel's reaction to God's protection from his wrath. It says, very plainly in verse 28, they went and did so. And then Moses wants to make it really clear to us. So in the second half of verse 28, it says, as the Lord commanded, so they did. Here was their response to God's offer of protection to them. They believed him, and the result of their belief was action. They didn't have a dead faith. They had a living faith, a faith that could be proven through their action. There was evidence that they believed God. There were no cozy, comfortable Israelites who said, yep, I believe the blood's going to cover over us, and God's going to pass right over, and it doesn't really matter if I put the blood on the door or not, because God will metaphorically believe that the blood is there. No, they did what God told them to do. And because they did what he told them to do, they were under his protection. So then, the Egyptians experienced this plague. You can imagine, as different ones of them throughout the night were finding out that their son or their father, or their husband, or their grandfather, or their uncle was dead. And so you were hearing these shrieks, these sobs, come from homes all over Egypt at different times of the night. They are wailing. And this wailing leads there to be a great panic in the nation of Egypt, which is exactly what you think would happen. And they come to realize that Egyptian sons and fathers and grandfathers and uncles are the ones who are dying and none of the Israelites' family members are dying. And they realize that God is making a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And they recognize that they are being punished by God. And so they panic. And in their panic, they fulfill God's prophecy, which is that the Israelites are not going to leave Egypt with nothing. But these women and these men who happen to not be the the firstborn are opening up their jewelry drawers. In other words, they're taking the most valuable things that they have, and they're saying to the Israelites, just take all of this. Just take all of this. We don't want any of this. Just take all of it. They're seeking to appease them because they're afraid that all of them are going to die. And we see in this that in God's grace, he not only saved the Israelites from his wrath by providing a substitute, He not only rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, but he also showed them extra favor. See, that's what that jewelry represents. It represents the smile of God on their life. God is saying to them, yes, you've been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years, but I am showing you that I am 
with you, and I am giving you a very tangible expression of that. Guys, we've seen this over and over again, this example of God's favor in the lives of believers, that he not only saves us and rescues us from our sin, but he also shows us blessing. We've, shown, we've seen it over and over again in our church planning network. Okay? In 2010, I jumped into Cornerstone Church in Ames, Iowa, which was sort of the place where our network took off from. At that point, there was one church in the network. There was no network. Soon after that, Veritas Church started in Iowa City. And when Veritas Church started in Iowa City, what had to happen is a bunch of people had to leave the comfort of their life and walk out in obedience to King Jesus, leaving behind family and friends to take on this new work of the kingdom. And since that time, we have seen in our network another about 23 churches planted. And there's going to be, within the next couple years, another six or so churches planted. We're estimating that by 2030, there'll be over 100 churches in our network. Okay, from Ames, Iowa. (laughs) What? How does that happen? It happens when the people of God don't take the protection of God for granted and don't look at his release in their life and freedom as an opportunity for sin, but an opportunity to go out and serve him. And what we've seen is that he just keeps showing his favor. Something that you'll hear me say is that we're like a person with a Dixie cup standing under the waterfall of God's grace. And we're just watching it overflow. And so we've seen countless examples of God providing spaces for us. Churches in our network have gotten free buildings. People have gotten job promotions. There's been just enough of God's favor on our lives to give us the encouragement to keep going. But don't hear me say in this, as we interpret this passage about the Israelites, or we interpret what happened in our network, that that means there has not been suffering. The favor of God on your life does not mean that you won't suffer. He's going to give us enough favor that we see his hand, but he's going to give us enough suffering that it keeps us humble. After all, my son is buried in this city. Favor and suffering. So here's the question. Is there sin that you need to repent of? Do you need to raise your hand and say, yes, I'm a sinner, I need a substitute. I need blood to cover my sin. You need to repent of sin. Saying, I I haven't even believed in the protection of God for me. Maybe that's one response to this passage. And maybe another response is, do you need to step out in faith and instead of hiding behind God's protection for you to see his protection as an opportunity for you to experience his favor and to step out in faith and serve him. Okay, skipped over a little something, and that's this. It's this passage for us. Guys, knowing this passage 
will be illuminating to you as you read the whole Bible. Okay, one example of that is from John chapter 19, verses 30 through 31. Here's what John writes as Jesus is on the cross. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now look at verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they be taken away. Okay, here's the really interesting thing. Verse 31, it was the day of preparation. The day of preparation for what? It was the day of preparation for the Passover. You see, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is referred to from the beginning, John 1 verse 29, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what we see John doing is connecting Jesus' work on the cross to the Passover. He's saying, don't you see it? Jesus died on the night of the Passover. And what John is saying is, those lambs, they never took away anybody's sin. This is the lamb that takes away your sin. See, the work of the Passover lamb was never finished, but Jesus says, it is finished. And what he is inviting us to be is the true Israel. He's inviting us to take his blood and to put it over the doorposts of our life. See, here's what a true Christian is. A true Christian is not somebody who hides the blood in their back pocket so nobody can see it. A Christian is somebody who says, the blood of Jesus defines my very identity. I'm putting it over the door of my life so that every single person can see it. And John is saying, if you will put the door over the doorpost of your life, the blood of Jesus, that when the real plague comes, when Jesus comes back on that white horse, when everyone who has disobeyed him and every sinner on this earth will be held to account and not just killed in the night, but tortured forever in hell. That is coming. We believe that. That is real. And every person who will not put the blood over the doorposts of their life because of embarrassment or the wanting to fit into the culture or whatever it is will die forever. And so I'm pleading with you this morning to trust in Jesus. Look, our faith, if you put it on a line graph, it's like this. It goes up and down. Sometimes we believe it, sometimes we don't. But here's what's true. If the blood is there, God will pass over you and you will be saved. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are our true Passover lamb and that although we are guilty, that you have made a way when there was no way. That we can be saved, not by the blood of lambs or goats, but by the precious blood of Jesus. You are without spot or wrinkle. You are innocent and perfect, our perfect substitute. And I pray that the person who is trusting in themselves and their own goodness this morning when they came in, would transfer their trust to Jesus and his blood so that you would pass over.
Pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen.